0: This prayer is a prayer that is for us as well as for them. And as a result, we can pray this for us and for each other and receive from the Lord the grace. And by the way, you need to know this isn't in the notes. If you're following the blog, you're like, he's not on track. He's already rabbit trailing. There are so many good graces God gives His people, not because we ask for them, but because He's good to us. And so even when we don't know what to ask for, He still is gracious and gives to us what we need. But particularly, He also answers the prayer of His people. And today we want to read this prayer that has been given by the Spirit for the church at Ephesus and for the church global and for us. And we want to pray this as well. So this is Paul's prayer for the church's growth and knowledge. Quoting Warren Wearsby here, he's like, okay, he's on track now. Here we go. There are two prayers in Ephesians. The first one in verse 15 to 23, and it's a prayer that you might know. And then the second prayer in verse 14 to 21 of chapter 3, that you might be. The first is for enlightenment. The second one is for enablement. And that's exactly what we found in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are this glorious reality of who we are. Four through six is going to be what we are to be and what we are to do. The idea that knowing is a mind thing. The idea that knowing is just a mind trick or it's simply the gathering of information is a false idea. Biblically, knowing... Implies action. That one would know implies that one would act upon what they know. That's the biblical understanding of knowing. If one truly knows, then they have to act. Otherwise, you know it does what to you? Drives you crazy. That's why you hear things like ignorance is bliss, right? Because once you know, there's no such thing as just not knowing anymore. You have to do something. Either don't act or you act. And so, biblically, the idea of knowing implies that there is going to be action. And after all, didn't Jesus teach us to pray like this? Matthew 6, 9 and 10, Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For Father, to make his name great, to hallow his name is for us to know and to act upon Father's name being made great. You understand that? In order to know He's great, we have to be shown that He is great and know. And once we know, what do we do? We make His name great. By doing what? Obeying. Worshipping. For the kingdom to come and for His will to be done... We have to know the kingdom and we have to know his will and then just sit on it. Are you awake? Do you sit on it? No, you do it. This is why Jesus gives this is why he uses the imperative, right? Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. Doug. Exactly. There has to be an action done as a result of the learning of the greatness of the Father and His purposes on earth. Paul wants these Ephesians to know and he wants us to know more. Because in the knowing, there's going to be more being and doing. Why do people not worship Jesus? Because they don't know Him. They may be able to, in in our town, they may, may be able to say the name Jesus and correctly state facts about Jesus. But they don't know Him or they would worship Him. Stating facts that are true does not imply true knowing. Their state is the 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6 state in which they're blinded by the evil one and by the rebellion and they can't see and thus know. So to know is to do and to be. We can never, ever get enough knowing. And let me be clear right here. I'm going to stay on task because I have an italicized and underlined part of this. This is very important. Let me be very clear You've heard me say, you've heard us as your pastors say in the past that you don't need more Bible studies. And I agree. I'm going to say that and affirm that. Many of us have more than enough outlets for Bible study. We've got a Sunday morning, a midweek, an end of week, a coffee and a lunch, 16 different accountability partners, 12 Bible studies. We have more than enough outlets for Bible study. We said and we have said that we need to actually act on some of what we've learned. This is true. However, don't hear. Do not hear in those statements that you need to stop learning and knowing. This is not what we're saying. Often social bugs, you people who are not introverts, because I am an introvert. You think that's weird, I know. Jesus has got a great sense of humor. Often you social bugs, you can attend multiple Bible studies and learn nothing. You're just hanging out and it's good to hang out. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't hear that that's bad. But it's just being social. Often people can do what is a symptom of our culture in the fallen state that we're in and divorce knowing from acting. And they just become walking encyclopedias of information that just seeks to correct everybody else and every nuance of difference in what they've adopted as their personal orthodoxy. Does that make sense? I hope, you, under, I hope you, you, you heard that and got that. It does no good to be a walking encyclopedia that's just getting on everybody because their eschatology is different than yours and they have charts to prove it. That's not the purpose of knowing. We are to know that we may be what Paul is describing is in Christ. And what we're going to learn in chapters 4 to 6, that our actions are in Christ. So, we want what Paul prays for here. We want to know more. And we want that knowledge of Jesus Christ to increase. This is why biblical fellowship has to always be around the Word. There are times to just hang out and watch football. Amen. Thank you, Doug. You just root for the wrong team. We love you anyway. (laughs) You are, you are. That's right. We want to know Christ. There are times to just hang out. But fellowship must always be around Christ and the riches of being in Christ and the mission. Which is the glories of being in Christ. We can do all of that together. And that makes the mission a blast. We want to know more And we want that knowledge of Jesus Christ increased. We want to sound the depths of the glory of God in the study of Scripture. We want to taste His grace by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we want to see that knowledge produce fruit that lasts. So let's dive into this prayer for the church to know more of Christ. And let's make this our prayer for each other, for the body, and for the body of Christ globally. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason... And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We've got four observations out of this passage we want to make. The first one is in verse 15 to 17. And here it is. Paul prays that they, the church, may grow in their knowledge of the Father. Paul prays that they may grow in their knowledge of the Father. Paul's reason for praying, if you notice, he starts verse 15 for this reason. In other words, because of their salvation, because of what he has done to call them out of darkness into light, because of what he has done in his glorious and gracious election of them to be adopted as children of God, because of their salvation, and as a result, because of their love for each other, he says... Paul now prays that they may grow in the understanding of what it means to be in Christ. We learned in chapter 1 verse 8 that they've been blessed in Christ with wisdom and insight to know the mystery of His will. And we spent time unpacking that. But here, Paul uses the future tense. The implication of the use of the future tense is that we will know, and we will continue to know, and we will continue to need to know and grow in our knowing. So because they're in Christ, because of His great grace that He has shown them, Paul now makes it clear that he wants them... To not be static and not just be stagnant, but He wants them to grow and increase in their knowledge of Christ. So here are some implications of that. Number one, we must continue to grow in our knowledge of Father, Son, and Spirit. Nobody has arrived. Listen, I don't care how much education you have, I don't care how many times you've read through your Bible. You and I have not arrived. We are in a constant state of needing to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, what He came to do, and what He's made us to be. A cursory reading of any good Christian biography, you will discover that the older one lives and grows in Christ, the more they realize they need to grow and know. My boy George Mueller, you, you probably get sick of hearing It's been a while since I brought up Mueller, so it's about time. My hero, at age 92, was still digging for more. What he knew led him to make great strides in rescuing orphans. But what he knew caused him to grow and caused him to realize he needed to grow more. The cat got to age 72 and had read through his Bible a 100 times. By the time he reached 92, he had read through 200 times. Do the math. He picked up the pace. He realized, I'm getting closer to death and I don't know enough. Why? Because we are to continue growing. We're not to be stagnant. We're to grow in Christ. We're to continue to discover what it means to be in Christ. I told you last week, it's just a cursory count in Paul's letters 169 times. Paul uses this language of in Christ. It was centered to his theology. What does it mean for us to be in Jesus? I can't answer all that today. We've been doing that for three weeks and we haven't even scratched the surface. We're to continue to grow in the knowledge of the Father, Son and the Spirit. I didn't put this in the notes, but that has to be an issue of humility as well. We don't peddle strategies. In case you hadn't figured that out, we're not all about any type of strategy here. We're about Jesus. Because we want to know Him. Because you know what I've discovered is the more we know Christ, the more He providentially walks us into His strategies. This is why you'll discover in Scripture... An amazing lack of strategic instruction. It's not there. You wanna know why? Because Jesus wants us to know Him first, not necessarily how to do something. Jesus isn't a pragmatist. Another result of this understanding that we need to continue to grow is that Scripture understood and applied by the Spirit in our gathered and private lives, must be central in our growth. Scripture understood and applied by the Spirit in our gathered and private lives must be central in our growth. We learn in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9-16, to that spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. And this understanding can come only from the Spirit. He wrote the Word and He alone can teach us what it says. And this comes in the dynamic of gathered and private. Not private alone. It's not enough. We are not Unitarians. We're Trinitarians. And because God is Trinities and Community, we cannot be isolated from the body and be in fellowship with God. It just does not work. And so scripture understood and rightly applied, gathered and private has to be central in our growth. We sound the depths of the glory of God together and we do it privately as well. Three, we must be discerning in who and what we listen to and apply. Jesus taught us there would be false prophets that would come, did he not? And he even said that they might even deceive the elect if that were possible. Chew on that one for a week. You know what that means? The elect will not be misled. Why? Because John 10, they hear my voice and they follow me. They don't listen to the voices of those that they don't belong to. They hear mine and they follow me. So we have to be discerning to make sure the voices we're hearing, the ideas, the beliefs that we're hearing are Jesus. They're the Spirit. They're from the Father. Or are they from our culture and they're just disguised with a Jesus t-shirt? We have to be discerning in who and what we listen to and apply. Listen, Satan is no dummy. He's defeated, but he's no dummy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11, particularly chapter 11, he says, These false prophets come to you. And he says, No wonder, because Satan is even disguised as an angel of light. Duh. Yeah. If he just showed up say, hey, I'm Satan, I want to take you to hell, follow me, but oh, I'm good. No, 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 I'm good. But clever as he is, he seeks to disguise untruth in a cloak of Jesus-sounding language. And so therefore, we have to be discerning in what we consider spiritual growth. Well, we learned that when we studied through 1 John, right? Discern the spirits. Number four, we have to be discerning about our experiences and evaluate them according to Scripture. We don't grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ on experience. You grow in your knowledge of Christ from the manual. And that dictates your experience and filters out whether it's true or false. But let's make no mistake. The prayer is that we would grow in the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. And so that is the prayer that we may grow in that knowing and that understanding. Listen, Jesus taught deeply. You read, read, read the chapter in Matthew. isn't is on the notes. Read Matthew 13 and why Jesus taught in parables. We're not going to unpack that now. It's just for your own benefit. Go study Jesus' own words on why He taught in parables. That we might seek to know. That we might seek to know. That we might not give up and walk away and go, gosh, geez, that's hard. I don't think God wants us to know that. Listen, don't ever, please don't ever say that. Please don't ever let me hear that coming out of your mouths. If He put it in the manual, He intends for you to know it. It's not hidden from your sight. If you are in Christ, He intends for you to sound it out till you get it. I think sometimes the problem is we're just lazy. It's not on a TV show. It's not a dramatic format. It doesn't have four episodes in a mini-series. Do you understand thinking requires work? Right? If it didn't, everybody would be great thinkers. He wants you to know. He wants you to seek. And look. And dig. And think harder. Because the intent is to know. To know Him more. Because we're going to learn that in knowing Him more, there is great reward. Number two from verse 18. Paul prays that the church may know the hope that they have in being Jesus' inheritance. This Verse 18. I want you to listen to verse 18 carefully. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, comma... And then, then he, he unpacks, he defines what that is. That's why the commas there. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In order for the Christian to know the riches of our hope that we have, that he just says we have here, we have to have our hearts, eyes enlightened through the knowing of more Jesus. The connection... To verse 17 is key. There's no new sentence here. And, and matter of fact, verse 15 to 23 is a single sentence in the original language. If your translation breaks it up, I mean it's on purpose for that translation theory, but it's a single sentence. And the connection of verse 17 is crucial because it's how verse 18 happens. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened is a complex set of words in verse 18. And enlightened is the key word because it's the participle. And you're like, I don't want to know that. But it's vital that you know that. Because what that participle does is describe what is happening to the eyes of the heart due to what's happening in verse 17 because of the gaining and illumination of information and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because by the ministry of the Spirit that we've learned in verse 1 to 14 that He does in us... We are learning and growing in our knowledge of Christ. And as a result, we are having our heart's eyes opened. You tracking? Are you moving with me? Please, if not, please shake your head no, because I'll go back and we'll go over it again. I'm a teacher. That's what I do for a living. You get it? No, let's start over. I'm good with that. Okay? Because we're growing in the knowledge of Christ, the eyes of our heart, They're being enlightened. They're being opened. The implications here are big. The idea that my heart has eyes is vital. Right? Do You understand they're not literal eyeballs in my heart going, I can't see. I hope you get that. The idea here is that sight is more than physical. Sight is more than physical. The idea is that there's discernment to be had. And the heart, biblically, the seat of the emotions and volition and thinking and all those glorious things, they need to be able to see. The idea that I can't see as well as I need to as a Christian is also big. None of us see or discern completely clear. We're in need of constant learning and revealing that we may see and know and do. And the reality is that we're in great need of constant illumination to see and know more of the glory of the kingdom, and the glory of Christ, and the glory of Trinitarian reality. And the good news is we have the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom and insight. And we are continually being transformed by the ministry of the Spirit. And we need constant growth to make sure that we understand and are aware of the magnitude of the glories of who we are and what we are a part of. These things always, because of the fallen nature of our world and the fallen nature of the human body, are muddled. And we don't always see clearly... And the spiritual turmoil and the spiritual fight that is around us. And we must constantly be growing in Christ and having our hearts, eyes enlightened so that we may know, he says, what is the hope to which he has called you. We need to be constantly growing so that we can know our hope. Well, here's a question for you two vital observations. What is this hope? and and how how do I have this hope? Two vital observations here. The first one is the one in verse eighteen notice here um the one in verse eighteen receiving the inheritance is his. Let me read verse 18 again. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. The one in verse 18 receiving the inheritance here is His. And the His in verse 18 is not us, it's Jesus. And this is vital to our hope. Now we learned in verse 11 to 14 that we receive an inheritance, right? Remember last week? That we receive the inheritance of face-to-face communion with Father, Son, and Spirit and each other and together in Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. But in verse 18, we discover that we are not the recipients of this inheritance. Paul prays that we would have our eyes and hearts in light that we may know the hope we are called to. Our calling into Christ is stated clearly in the rest of the verse. And that calling is that we belong to Jesus as the riches of His inheritance. He says it exactly like this. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Meaning, Jesus' inheritance is a rich inheritance, and His rich inheritance is the saints. You remember a few weeks ago, I put a footnote at the bottom of the notes, a bunch of passages in the Gospel of John. John 6.37, John 6.39, John 10.22-30, John 17.2, 6, 9, and 12. They're in the notes, you don't have to write that down, just go look on the notes today. Where John records Jesus talking about his mission to rescue and sustain and save all those the Father has given him. Listen to this very carefully. The church is the precious possession of Jesus. And he is calling his church to himself from all nations through the proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus keeps them all and loses none of them. He died to secure them. He died to keep them. He was raised to secure them. He was raised to keep them. And through his powerful work on our behalf, he loses none of them. The church is Jesus' precious possession. And it is His inheritance. Paul prays here that his readers will appreciate the value that God places on them, his plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future, in order that their lives may be in keeping with the high calling, and that they may accept in grateful humility the grace and glory lavished on them. Wow! He wants us to know and grow in our knowing that our hearts may be enlightened to see this glorious reality that we are Jesus' inheritance. Here's a little quote for you from Kent Hughes. That, that one I just read was F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, and it's in the footnotes. You can see that. That's why I footnoted it. So I didn't have to tell you I footnoted it, but since I did that, I shouldn't have footnoted it and just wrote F.F. F. Bruce. Went through all that academic work for nothing. There's a quote from Kent Hughes on this passage. Think of it. He owns all the heavens and numberless worlds, but we are his treasures. The redeemed are worth more than the universe. We ought to be delirious with this truth. Paul prays that we will see this with our heart's eyes. End quote. Wow. So you need your heart enlightened by continual growth in Christ to understand the fact that we together as the people of God are Jesus' treasured inheritance. The Father has given the Son a redeemed humanity so He goes to die for them and rise to secure their salvation so that their calling forth from all nations would be secure of foregone conclusion and therefore He would receive His people who will make much of Him forever. That's who we are. Remember. There's a few points here to to, to think about here. Just a couple of points. Remember, through all the muddled vision on this side of the fall and on the other side of the kingdom fully come, we are His possession and we're kept and cared for and loved by Christ. That's what the church is. This is why the church is vital and not throwaway. The church is not peripheral. The church is not negotiable. She is Christ's precious possession. And therefore, each of us are not throwaway. Remember that the next time you want to get in somebody's face because you don't like something they said or did. They're Jesus' precious possession. We're to remember and pray for the discernment to see and know who you belong to and grow in the knowledge of such glory. And in case that overwhelms you a tad, none of us fully get all that. That's why we have a Bible and Holy Spirit, so we can continue to sound out that glorious reality. Second vital observation here from verse 18 is, The church's hope is that we will be His people and be brought into the kingdom. That's our hope. Our hope is planted firmly in Christ. And our hope is that we will be His people And He will bring us into His kingdom. Hope is the opposite of despair. You get that. Hope creates great optimism. Optimism is a synonym of hope. Our great hope lies in not what we achieve, but in being Jesus' people and His treasured possession. This is is, is another way to say the justifying work of the cross is awesome. Because my hope lies not in what I pull off, but in the fact that I am His treasured possession. And so are you. This means we have great reason to be filled with great hope and optimism, doesn't it? If you're a despairing person, because of our current political and social climate, if you watch more news than you read Bible, you're a despairing person. Let me invite you to lift your eyes from the broken morass of our fallen world to the glorious reality of the real kingdom and the real king and our real citizenship. Our great hope lies not in a broken system's solutions, but in the rule of Jesus Christ and His mission and His powerful kingdom that is already working through the world like yeast through dough. Thus Jesus' parable of the kingdom about yeast and dough. little side note here, this doesn't mean we're to disengage from our culture. Rather, we are to view our culture through the lens of Jesus' rule and Jesus' kingdom and engage it with such clear hope that Jesus is going to correct that either through us or when He comes. But either way, it's hopeful and not a lost cause or wasted work. We have a deep and great optimism and hope due to our great and deep hope we have in being His people. Number three. Paul prays that the church may know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward the church. Verse 19 to the first part of verse 20. And... So, And tacks on to what He wants us to grow in the knowledge of and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Paul uses three words here to describe this great power that the Father is exercising to us, His people, as a treasured possession. The first word is the word we see in our translation called power. It's the word Dunamis. And it means dynamic and living, powerful stuff. The other word is the word we see that's that's translated working. It's energia. Or you would say energia in English speaking type stuff. And it's energetic power. And then the word might. And it's the word kratos. It's power that overcomes resistance. So power that's big enough to overcome the resistance put on it. These are the three words Paul uses to describe the power that is being exercised toward Jesus' people, the church. Paul prays that we would grow in our knowing of Jesus and be enlightened by the Spirit to know the incredible power that is exercised toward the people of God. This is the same power, he says in verse 20, that is exercised in the work of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I suppose one day we're going to taste that in our resurrection from the dead. But the assertion here is that that power is also already being worked in us. How? Well, the dynamic, the dunamis, powerful work of God, this constant change, this constant activity, this constant process. You know what the Bible calls that? Sanctification. Do you understand that you're being grown by God even when you don't know it? Do you understand that even in your failures that Jesus is still cleaning you up and working in you powerfully? Do you understand that he is currently shifting and changing your desires? This dynamic activity and progress of sanctification is a glorious promise we receive because of salvation. And this powerful work of God to take people who were not children, adopt them as children, and begin to clean them up and make them look like the Trinitarian God of the universe is a glorious, dynamic, and powerful activity that is presently happening whether you realize it or not. So be encouraged today. If you're in Christ... Philippians 1.6 is true. He will complete what He has started. And He is powerfully at work in us. Energetic. Vibrant. It's alive. Father's work toward us is vibrant and full of energy. There is strength He gives to follow Jesus. And to stay on the grind when we're tired and weary. Because His work is never tired and weary. He can fill us and give our lives strength and power when we don't physically have any. He can cause our soul to be encouraged when we shouldn't be encouraged and keep us in the fight. Why? Because that's what He does. That's the power He exercises to His precious inheritance, the church. Then overcoming resistance, He defeats the enemy and the enemy's resistance to the gospel. There is no resistance that can effectually wage war against the kingdom of God. It's yeast and dough. It's a net cast into a sea. Treasure hidden a field. It's the pearl of great price. There is no resistance that can thwart the kingdom of God, the rule of Christ. No weapon formed against the people of God can work to its conclusion. Jesus is caring for his church and he will complete her. Ephesians five, twenty two to twenty three, which we'll get there soon enough. Mistake it not. It isn't Paul saying the church is like marriage. It is Paul saying marriage is like the church and Christ. And he says at the end of that passage, this this thing is a mysterious and profound reality. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, speaking of marriage. And he tells us in that passage that as husbands, we're to love our wives The way Jesus loves and cares for His church. Meaning that Jesus, we learned in that passage, will complete, sanctify, clean up and finish the work He started in His people. His power is overcoming. He will overcome resistance. And just, can I throw this on you? He will overcome your resistance to Him. Listen, you may... Kick and scream against the vine dresser pruning you, but he will prune you whether you like it or not because he cares for you. And he will see to it that you bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. That's what it means to be in the vine. You belong to the vine dresser. Otherwise, he cuts you off and burns you in the fire. He's going to overcome resistance. Because we're His, He will finish what He started because we're His precious inheritance. That's good news, by the way. Number four, and finally, Paul prays that the church may know the glorious position of Jesus. In verse 20, the second part, through verse 23, Paul prays that we would know Jesus' glorious position. The first thing he tells is two two positional things. Things Paul tells us about Jesus here. Verse 20 and 21. We learn that Jesus rules as authority over all heavenly powers. And seated with Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We learn here... That Jesus currently sits enthroned above every name and every rule. Name signifies purpose and rule signifies power. Every spiritual power whose resistance against the rule of father now has an enemy that has been unleashed on them. And Jesus won't relinquish that power now or in the coming kingdom. There is no power or authority that Jesus won't handle. They now have an enemy in Jesus Christ who will absolutely obliterate and destroy. And the image Paul gives us in Revelation 19 is seated on a white horse and he's got a sharp two-edged sword and he's got a robe on dipped in blood and it's not his. He died once. He will not die again. He was crushed for my sin once. He will not be crushed again. But he sits enthroned ruling and there is no power that can stand against the king. That is Jesus' position. And He wants our hearts enlightened to know this reality. And He even says we're seated with Him in Christ. That's where we're seated in the spiritual realm. This is key for the Ephesians because they're all afraid of this stuff. We're going to get to the end of the book. He's going to tell them to put on the armor. Why? Because they're afraid. They need armor. And He tells them, here's what your armor looks like. And he defines it for them. We have that same reality because we're seated with Christ. There is no weapon. There is no spiritual power that trumps us. Jesus in the gospel has given us authority over the spiritual realm. There is no resistance to the gospel that will succeed. So why do we sit coward and afraid to go preach the gospel in hard places? Because we have an idol called safety and security and prosperity. The understanding is the church has absolutely nothing to fear in the spiritual realm. Now and ever, nothing. He rules over his people and his kingdom well, and he rules over the rebellious forces of evil that he is subjected to himself now. You just put this as a side note here. And this may blow your theology up, but it's true. Jesus made hell. And he didn't make hell to give to Satan to rule. Jesus made hell to put Satan in, and he will rule it forever really well. And so there is no power that stands against Jesus. He will crush them under his feet, and forever all those opposed to the gospel will be under his feet. There's no spiritual power that can thwart the church, because we're his treasured possession. The end product for us is we have absolutely nothing to fear. In then, verse 22 to 23, as we shut down here, Jesus rules as the head of the church. He says here, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. I really am not taking time to unpack that language there, and it's kind of a shame, but I'm intending to try to get to, to just to wrap up without preaching for 50 minutes. He put, All things under his feet, whose feet? Jesus' feet. Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. So Jesus has been given to us as our head. You hear us say this a lot here. Jesus is the senior pastor. That's why we don't have one. There's no such thing as chief pastor anybody. Jesus is the only chief. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is never leading itself. The church global is never leading itself. Don't matter how many of us they kill, they can't kill our leader. And you can't stamp out His work because His work towards us is powerful. And so therefore, the church is never leading itself. As long as the church is present, the gospel will go forward And the mission will get done because Jesus shepherds His church well. He raises up leaders. Jesus makes disciples. We just reap the fruit in putting our hands to His work. Pastors, including leaders in our country, never have to worry about being alone in ministry. (laughs) He's always present and leading well. Ours is but to put our hands on the work and never fret over it. We have a powerful and exalted Shepherd, and his name's Jesus. And here's how we're going to close. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gave us Psalm 23 to remind us of how senior pastor Jesus leads his people. You ever read Psalm 23 and understood it rightly? This is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To help us see who our shepherd is. And our shepherd is the Lord. And who did Jesus say he was? The Lord. So guess who our chief shepherd and our senior pastor is? Jesus. So David wrote this psalm about Jesus shepherding of his church. I want you to hear it with those ears and with those eyes. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Chief Shepherd Jesus leads us beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what Chief Shepherd Jesus does and that's how He shepherds us. Let's pray. Father, I pray and beg You now that Holy Spirit's ministry would be powerful and effective at shepherding Your people this morning in our hearts, that You would enlighten them, open the eyes of our heart, we want to see and know Jesus Christ. and We want to grow in that so that we can perceive and understand and grow in our hope of being your inheritance and taste the power of the gospel toward us as we submit ourselves to the rule of King Jesus. So help that to happen today. Holy Spirit, I pray and trust that you will do that in every heart. Be sovereign over every heart. Knock down every wall of resistance. Overcome every resistance. Overcome everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ and rule well. I pray that you would bring forth from these lips praise to give you your due of worship and song. And from our hands and our feet and our hearts, the worship of living as a living sacrifice. Please rule this time well. It's yours. And we pray in Jesus' name.